For May 22nd, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 464. E.T. I learned it from you, alien dad. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather in Los Angeles. I am joined by Pete Fenzel from Boston. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And we are joined by Mark Lee from New York, New York. Hey, Mark, what's going on? Hey, the usual New York stuff. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's a city never sleeps. It's uh, it's actually it's actually a medical disorder. We've had hallucinations <laughs> for a while now. We can't uh, can't really distinguish reality from fantasy uh, anymore. Uh, anyway, you're welcome for the president. So uh, so I guess I, I gather, guys, that that a movie uh, about an extraterrestrial came out this <laughs> this week. <laughs> And that it narrowly edged out the second week of Guardians of the Galaxy to be the number one movie in uh, America. So, so surely, well, actually, Matt, one, one, one. Well, actually, there, yeah, I believe it was the third week of Guardians of the Galaxy oh. because of the second week of Guardians. Guardians of the Galaxy crushed King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. I believe is what happened. Ah, uh, uh, understood. How quickly Sorry. we forgot that that came and went. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've, I've just pulled up Box Office Mojo. And indeed, you are correct. I was incorrect. Uh, this is uh, week three of Guardians, which maybe is a little sad then that that uh, Alien Covenant only edged it out by uh, by less than a million dollars in the, the weekend gross estimates. So but it's you know, it's here. Uh, this phenomenal pop culture. I mean, we we just cover every new entry in every new franchise so obviously we're going to cover this movie isn't that correct pete fenzel <laughs> well if there's one thing that's true about alien movies it's horrific surprises to the contrary <laughs> <laughs> i'm Go. just gonna hug your face matt i'm gonna hug your face and tell you what's really gonna happen oh i hug my face in friendship i hope <laughs> of Friendship? Wait a minute. Hold on, Matt. That gives me a wonderful idea. <laughs> aliens and friendship? We could be talking about that instead of about aliens eating the guy from Eastbound and Down, which maybe they do in this movie or maybe they don't. Could we talk about aliens and friendship? Is I, that possible? I, I hope we I hope we can because I feel like I've forgotten how to love recently. And I <laughs> I I need a glowing red alien heart. To uh, to teach me that my human heart uh, still works, you know. That's I need true. to I need to come back from a kind of cryogenic freezing um, that's yeah. that's been going on. And uh, and Mark, and I think you need to learn yeah. some. I need to learn some totally sweet tricks on my BMX bike, <laughs> which I seem to have forgotten over the years. Mark, you feel the same way as we do, don't you? Uh, I do. I feel like I have a heart of black goo. That it needs to morph into something inexplicable and then into something inexplicable again. Um, just a quick history lesson for those who weren't aware of this. A few years ago, Pete and I went and saw Prometheus, uh, I guess the alien-ish movie that was part of the you know the movie that was part of the Alien franchise. Though I like, aware, exactly I love, I love uh, how how it's like this is a, a quick history lesson. Here's this thing I did with my friends a while back. Yeah, no, it is history because Pete and I, we were excited to see this Prometheus movie because the trailer looked totally sweet. And, you know, I guess uh, we liked Alien and Aliens. Uh, and so we're like, okay, let's do this. And we were horrified. 
uh, it, it uh, we were scarred and are, remain scarred to this day by the unrelenting psychosexual violence uh, of the film. Uh, I'm not going to, I'll spare you the details. Um, and I guess if you want to hear us complain about Prometheus and be traumatized by it, you can go back and find that in the archives. But uh, let's not talk about that. Instead of a, an alien that takes life, Let's talk about an alien that gives life. That's it's true. I'm like I am like a pot of wilted flowers, and I need <laughs> I need to be restored to my shining, colorful uh, glory. And and if you haven't gotten it, if you haven't gotten it yet, uh, we're talking about the 1982 Spielberg masterpiece E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So yeah, we we decided this week that we were not none of us going to go see Alien Covenant. Uh, and that we would instead use the podcast to do something that we have never done before. Talk about E.T. on overthinking it. Now, this is it seems like a weird omission. It seems like an odd lacuna because we like uh, in the course of several thousand uh, posts on overthinking it, I feel like we've talked about everything. I mean, I feel like there's no stone, at least in our childhoods, in our own personal uh, pop culture pantheons that has gone un- unturned. So, so let me ask, do you think there's a reason that we haven't talked about E.T.? Like, is there, you know, something about the movie that doesn't seem like it would lend itself to overthinking? Because I know, like, film theoretical ink, film critical ink has been spilled uh, at a fairly high level on this this movie. I mean, is it too accepted as a part of the part of the canon? I, you know, I don't know. No, no need to dwell on this, but but quick takes, either of you, as why this hasn't been uh, an overthinking it mainstay thus far? Uh, well, part of it, at least, is because it's not part of a sprawling cinematic universe with a bunch of sequels. Uh, it's a really a standalone thing. And, uh, uh, you know, our, our go-to science fiction touchstone from our child- childhood, Star Wars, right, just kind of sprawls and sprawls and sprawls and invites um, a lot of... Um, you know, kind of speculation about its world building and its politics and things like that. And ET isn't is not that sort of movie. Yeah, it's, um, that's sure. my, my quick take. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it's not a systems movie. It's not a world building no. movie. Uh, uh, fair enough, uh, Pete. What do you think? Oh well, we've we've talked about it. We've talked about things that have been influenced by it, which comes to mind. Like we've talked about Stranger Things, which upon rewatching ET is Stranger Things is like 60 percent ET, right? Right. Like pretty much that's like about the proportion. Uh, And we've talked about other movies that have been connected to it in some way. So ET occupies this space between Star Wars and Jurassic Park, right? Like like an actual space, not a physical space, but a, a financial space in that it surpassed Star Wars as the highest grossing movie ever. And it held on to that title until it was passed in turn by Jurassic Park. And I wonder if there's just part of us that wants to kind of contract that space and sort of bridge it uh, and sort of heal that and, and fix that so that it's always action. I don't know. Maybe it's that E.T. is a movie that works for little kids and for parents and doesn't necessarily jive as much for people in between. 
Uh, I would maybe posit that. I, I don't, don't know. know. Not, about that. None of the three of us uh, is parents, and I like it. Got a little dusty in the room where when I was watching ET. Actually, I thought of our our earlier conversation about sentimentality, right? When when I was watching when I was watching this movie, because like there there are moments in this this film that will make you cry like a baby. Uh, it's so. Uh, it's so masterful the way it <laughs> sort of manipulates. Uh, I shouldn't say that, that because that has a negative valence. The way it uses the tools of filmmaking and storytelling to kind of create an emotional tone and um, and do it. And actually, th- there's a moment, there's a great self-referential moment uh, near the end of the movie that underscores how good uh the acting is in this movie remind me before we finish because i want to i want to uh talk about it a little bit but let's not let's not uh uh get into it now let's let's sort of start um at the very uh at the very beginning uh of of et but but i uh before we do i want to take a moment uh and talk about overthinking it memberships because we are brought to you uh every week i could say we are brought to you this week as though like we had purchased some sort of sponsorship on our own podcast and the overthinking it Ouroboros was uh was eating its tail but no we're we're brought to you uh every week by overthinking it members people who have signed up for memberships uh monthly or annual subscriptions which give you uh in exchange for a small payment periodically uh both the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing that you support overthinking it uh and also some cool stuff too especially at the some of the higher the higher levels uh I, you know at the higher uh the the highest tier of membership there are monthly hangouts where we actually talk it's almost like an extra podcast app episode but you get to participate uh in it when uh when we all video chat together uh with the overthinking it writers and the members at what we call the full harvey level uh, at the middle level you get access to the digital library and oh my goodness there is a bunch of stuff up in the digital library right now including uh what we call the pete cast i i, I kind of named it that without asking pete so i'm sorry in advance if you if you think that that uh, if you're not a, a fan of that title, I don't know. Does does the Pete Cast work for you as a title of what to call the series? Yeah, so far so good. I think at one point in the latest episode, I I go all Uncle Pete for a second, and I'm thinking maybe Uncle Pete is uh, is another brand that I could develop uh, for content in the future. But I mean, for now, yeah, I feel <laughs> like the the Pete Extended Universe is really. <laughs> Is really the value proposition of, of the middle tier. Uh, we have moved the question of the the week uh, to the digital library. Uh, Mark Lee has contributed uh, a, a series, a substantial series of his adolescent sketchbooks, uh, including original Star Wars fan art and other things, uh, to the digital library. And also, we have a, a sort of a return of the uh, television recap podcast because. Um, a crew of overthinkers is watching and recapping The Handmaid's Tale in weekly audio episodes. They're, they're actually bite-sized. They're about 20, 25 minutes long. It's an experiment in the, the format for us. That's all in the digital library. We're producing all of, uh, all of this content and sharing it uh, with the members who, who support us. And then at, at the lowest level, if, if uh, you know, maybe the wallet isn't super fat, but you still want to support the site you love, um, you can get an ad-free overthinking it experience. And our 
undying gratitude if you support us at the $5 a month level. That's that's like a dollar a podcast. And I hope, uh, I, honestly, if we don't provide you a dollar's worth of entertainment in this podcast, you should unsubscribe and do something else with your time because life is too short. So those are our, uh, the what you get uh, at the, the different membership levels. But the, the uh, main thing is that we want to say thank you uh, and because we are extremely grateful to those who support us, uh, who keep the doors open. Um, as we age, it seems like we were as young as Elliot when we started overthinking it. And as time becomes more scarce, um, the members make it possible to continue to work on overthinking it and also support uh, our our families and and uh, all the other obligations that uh, uh, get in the way of, of running a website with your smart, funny friends from the internet. So thanks very much to our members. If you're interested in becoming a member, I hope you are, uh, go to overthinkingit.com slash join and, uh, and become a member there. All right, let's start at the very... Uh, the very beginning of ET. I mean, it's it's at once a very long and a very short uh, sort of introduction, right? Because uh, it's very short in that you're you're through the first act of the movie very quickly. Like Alien is on Alien is on the planet very quickly, and yet, like you don't for the first little bit, you don't necessarily know who the main character. Uh, of the movie is going to be, and I'm thinking through to some of the early, uh, to some of the early posters that I've seen. They weren't, they weren't like the face of the the uh, the boy. I mean, the actor uh, who played Elliot, his name is Henry Thomas. He he was unknown. He was discovered for this. Uh, he was discovered for this movie. So it's not like his face would be a selling point. It was more like there's going to be an alien in this movie. And so, like, do you feel like the the um, do you feel like the uh, start of the film does anything for us in terms of like creating a tone or creating a creating a world that's going to be um uh creating a world in a way that's going to cash out uh later on in the film Uh, totally that's a leading question yes i I mean like yes yes, of course of course it does (laughs) go on (laughs) uh well there's a couple of elements of the visual language of the movie that are established right up front right some of these you'll get in this sort of film school analysis of this sort of movie of this movie specifically that you can find in, in any number of other places but the fact that other than the mom until more or less the third act of the movie, none of the adults are shot above the waist or you don't see any of their faces, right? Adults are kind of faceless. The, the idea that I particularly like the idea that E.T. is one light, then E.T.'s family guy, family guy, right? E.T.'s colleague, uh, perhaps E.T.'s bedmate. We don't know who it is. is another light, but the people coming after E.T. are a row of lights, right? Right. And there's a, there's an elemental language of the orientation of the flashlights and the heart lights as they search for each other through the woods that tells you the story right away. It's the same story. Well, not the same story, but it's a similar story to the uh, Star Destroyer and the Corellian Corvette in Star Wars, right? Where it's like small thing, big thing, right? And here it is sort of small thing, row of things. There's also... Uh, Mark, Mark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, the other thing going on at the beginning is this stark contrast between the organic and the mechanical and the artificial, right? The because uh, I think the first shot in the, uh, the movie, well, after the laborious long, laboriously long plain text intro credits, I think the first thing that we see is the interior of the spaceship with uh, the plants. Did um, you really feel then, like they were long? It was like it was like a dozen cards. 
You know, like uh, I don't know. It's it. It's, it well, my my attention span brain addled, uh, a poor uh, you know sack of uh, meat on top of my skull uh, couldn't uh, couldn't pay attention. Uh, I know, because, sure, because fair nothing happened. The text didn't move. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're um, anyway. What I'm trying to say is, uh, Wait, you, you weren't know, enthralled yeah. by the by the font choice, <laughs> where, yeah. where ET is kind of in chalk or crayon or lipstick, and the other stuff is is like the cover of a romance novel. Yeah, it's like Times New Times New Roman italic uh, capitals. You All know, right. Like. Also notable. Touche. Okay. Point taken. <laughs> what I'm saying is that inside the movie itself, yeah, the the aliens, um, they, they don't they're not wearing any clothes. Um, you see the plants, and then contrasted with uh, Pete mentioned before the flashlights, and then the keys, the jingling keys, the metal, um, the threatening metal on the guy's uh, belt, which is never fully explained. At least also, the scary, the scary arrival of the Chevy Suburbans or, or you know, Ford Broncos or whatever. Pete, can can we just get a car cast check? Yeah, those, those were a Ford. There were Ford Broncos there. Okay, yes, there you go. There were probably there were other cars as well but definitely positively identified ford broncos um the so. uh, uh right like the, it's it's very scary actually there's a lot in this film that's that's uh i think legitimately very scary even though it's not known as being a, a scary film but there there is de- there are definitely sort of uh ways in which this movie establishes a sense of threat and the the aspect of kind of like bursting or slicing into frame is one of them and that's what happens with the um that's what happens with the trucks at the at the beginning of the movie that's also right like the the um the heart lights are red and stationary. Uh, the flashlights are white and kind of mobile and and uh, swinging. And if if you you know recall, the light at the top of the steps in Elliot's uh, backyard is also red, like it it glows red. The kind of red lamp yeah. at the the by the gate um, at the the top of the steps, and we see it. You know, we see it uh, a couple times. So yes, at the at the beginning, we sort of establish this this visual language. Uh, I mean, another element is missed right like uh something that uh obscures and then another element is the the kind of the uh the technique of like looking through uh a semi-permeable barrier like looking through foliage or looking through um later windows slats screens you know different all kinds of things yeah now to be fair the mist both obscures and gives form to light Right, because it could be it behaves both ways in that it makes things hard to see, but then it also makes the uh, I mean, the the light, you know, has emotional signification that becomes visible in the way that that the uh, the movie is lit, that Elliot is lit. uh, The light has sort of this beneficent quality sometimes and this harsh negative quality other times. But the mist does a lot of work. It's it's doing James Cameron caliber mist work in this movie. <laughs> There's fewer fewer lights that are like swinging from the ceiling and more lights that are being carried by individual people, but the smoke machine is getting its but, getting its uh, did, you know, did you notice the other motif though? How many like gooseneck lamps there are in this movie? Sometimes two or three in a single shot. You know? Uh, the, what is uh, a gooseneck or, lamp? Like a, a Gooseneck, I suppose it's not really a gooseneck. A gooseneck is one that you can adjust by hand that is like the ribbed, you know, uh, like the neck of a goose, right? Like the, that is like a ribbed um, uh, lamp stand where you can kind of move the lamp around. The one I'm thinking is like articulated, well, like uh, with two arms that, you know, with hinges in between. And you can kind of reposition the lamp by, uh, uh, by you know, pulling it and kind of readjusting the armature that the, the lamp... Like- 
like Dr. On. Octopus arms. <laughs> I, su- I suppose. I, I'm going to have to uh, do a little Googling while we talk to find out the, the okay. exact name of that. Well, but they look like they look like cranes or something. They look like birds uh, there. And then uh, and it seems like they're in Elliot's room. There are a lot of them. But then there are a lot of fixtures like this, the kind of like bird like lamp hanging light fixture sort of hanging there uh, in the scene where the spacemen, the line of spacemen come up uh, above the horizon um, with the red background. There's also there is a street lamp in that same kind of like curved overhanging uh, curved overhanging way. So like, yes, this this movie is going to be the story of light and the story of uh, uh, the story of kind of like canvas, the canvas on which the mist, the canvas on which the light uh, on which the light plays, but which also obscures as when uh, Elliot goes to do the dishes, turns on the hot water and instantly an improbable amount of steam rises from uh, oh, rises yeah. from the sink that we see. That was a, from that was a great moment, right? Because this was after the family spat, the about that in Mexico and the divorce and all that kind of stuff, and then he's wistfully looking outside, right, and obscured by the uh, by the by the steam. Um, uh, before we get too far away from from this line of analysis here, I do want to make sure that we mention that all everything that we're talking about here is such a great example of show don't tell being done so well. Um, in particular, with uh, the with the ETs, with the aliens, and with the government people, right. There's none of this, like, there was a prophecy crap. There's none of this, my father was, you know, this, that, and the other crap. There's none of our, my mission is to save humanity, blah, blah, blah. We don't even know what government agency they're from, right? You know, the, their their goals. No, there's a, no there's one, a logo. There's a logo on the side of one of the cars that says, like, U.S. government. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's, United States uh, government. Yeah, and how how vague that is is just uh, something that I feel like you would, you would just never see uh, in, in movies these days. So anyway, That's, some, that's some Wes that, Anderson level stuff there right yeah, like that's really tilda is. swinton saying i'm social services right but th- so we understand we understand just enough from the visual language of these uh, first uh, establishing scenes to intuit very quickly uh everything that we need to know and that just kind of you know sets the set the stage sets the stage for the character work that's going to come before but so all that is to say yeah show don't tell uh really at work here the the um one of the things that the light does is like it creates um uh it creates a kind of a border between the known and the unknown and like I, you know that and that's the border at which Elliot and ET sort of meet right and and this is uh, it's interesting that there wasn't more I mean that the, the adults are distinguished from the children largely through their insensitivity to life whether it's like the the frog uh dissection scene or whether it's the way et is is treated you know as a sort of lab animal thing things like that 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 the uh that their relationship their sort of relationship to what's known and what's unknown or their perception of that boundary uh is different and and something about the like the lights sort of slicing through uh, slicing through the darkness uh, creates, you know, creates and kind of renegotiates these borders in a way that I think is thematically related to to what's going on in the film. Yeah, I mean, speaking of um, sort of E.T. E- e- and Elliot meeting at the border of the known and the unknown, um, now I think would be a good time to unpack that crucial meeting sequence 
um, where Elliot just kind of starts to almost like free associate or just uh, spout, um, you know, a stream of consciousness, all this stuff, which seems really important, including introducing him to various action figures such as, well, speaking <laughs> of Star Wars, right, Boba Fett, um, Lando Calrissian, uh, and we see Yoda later. But uh, Greedo, uh, Greedo, he's got Greedo. Greedo's there, yeah. Uh, Hammerhead, Walrus Man, Snackletooth. <laughs> I'm not even quite sure who all these so people are. You're not but... talking about the scene where Elliot and E.T. meet. You're talking right, about right, the right. scene where Elliot – this is like the sort of big uh, Downton Abbey yeah, scene. Yeah, media, because the meeting, yeah. the meeting is, is complex and it's drawn out over several sequences, right? Like there's yeah. the uh, – he's – you know, they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I, I nearly began uh, – I mere, nearly began these, these, uh, this podcast asking you both to verify that I have absolute power. But that uh, – that's <laughs> <laughs> that seemed ungenerous uh even as the the <laughs> dungeon master of this this our little game here um there's the you know the getting pizza scene the dropping the pizza the looking in the the stuff the Reese, trail of reese's pieces the screaming the you know uh but but once et is safely ensconced in the house you know, more or less to yeah. stay, right? And is being oriented. This is this is kind of like the Earth orientation scene. And I think I think you're right to highlight it as very important because from ten year old to Elliot's point of view, like these are the important things that he is communicating uh, about Earth to to ET. So yeah, from this point of view, like let let's go on. So he's got he's got the uh, he's got the uh, intertextuality one hundred and one um, uh, action figure set. <laughs> well, and the Pez dispenser. He's got the peanut that you eat versus the peanut that is a bank that you put money in, uh-huh. right? Uh, so, so do we want to talk about the purpose? Yes, of it's the like scene? this is this is a peanut, and I'm thinking to myself, this statement is false. <laughs> <You know? laughs> As we would say on the Overthinking a Podcast, in a way, this is a peanut. So, ET is a movie that has a lot of stuff in it. Tons and tons of stuff, just crap, just lying around, right, all the time. You know, the airplane glue. Elliot has like, air, he has paints, spray paints, a football helmet, a globe. Elliot appears to endeavor upon many different hobbies, and his whole house appears to be totally disorganized. The parents have no freaking control over those children, by the way. I love how in this movie the Strange things that the children are up to go unnoticed by the adults because the children are so out of control that they are always causing chaos and ruckus, and the adults just write it off as everyday activity, especially the mom. But uh, but the scene where Elliot explains E.T. what each thing is and what its purpose is, to me, spoke to a teleology of the movie that different things have purposes and different things ought to have purposes and a childhood experience of this teleology that this sort of child is not a coming of age. It's a it's a coming into self. It's a coming into personhood of a child as they recognize the things around them have purposes and that they recognize that the purpose or role of the things around them that might be wrong can be corrected, right? That the kid can interact with an object and make it do the thing that they want it to do. Uh, And that object could be, and then extrapolating that to living things, that you can do what you want to do with a living thing. And you can make a decision about how to deal with a living thing based on what you think it ought to be or ought to do. And, And for me, this scene where Elliot explained all these things was like really critical in, in setting up how to engage with all of the, the stuff that was around, which otherwise it does a good job of establishing the place and the time and the tone, but might not engage so much with what is happening. Yeah. Um, 
there, there's a couple of critical lines here. Um, one of which is um, as he's uh, uh, you know demonstrating the action figures, he says, and they can have wars or something to that effect. Um, and he's kind of he makes a little pew 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 sound and you know, kind of bashes the action figures together uh, against against them and. It's a bit at odds with the very life affirming and positive and peaceful. It's a completely, movie, completely. Right? Okay, so so go on there. But what? So if that's the case, then uh, what's going on there? Is, that, like, is Elliot- right, like, 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 yeah, exactly. He he says these things. Um, they can have wars, right? Uh, or and you think you think oh, all of a sudden there's going to be a fifth element plot, right? Where Mila Jovovich watches TV and realizes that, you know, uh, the the life of man in a state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that, like, uh, man's inhumanity to man knows knows no boundaries. But that's that's not what it is. And then the other, my favorite, like, uh, you know, the fish eat the fish food, the shark eats the fish, and no one eats the shark, has nothing to do thematically with with what uh, happens in what happens in, in the rest of the movie. And this is, I I mean, yeah, this is sort of this is sort of interesting to me. But I want to like I I, I, mean, w- I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that it has nothing to do with it. Okay, just to quickly. Well, right, point right, to that. but that the relationship between that statement, which is, I mean, this is the paradigmatic moment of the thing. If we're if we're like looking for a single kernel of meaning, that's that's going to kind of reverberate throughout the whole the whole movie, right? Like if we were trying to find the one. Uh, uh, scene to analyze in our high school paper on ET. This would be it. <laughs> oh Hand- yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, this is it, hands down. With like, with not even any clothes. Well, this is number one with a bullet. Um, I want to back up though. I I, I don't want to get us derailed in talking about this because I think it's interesting. And I guess the more accurate way of saying it is that the thematic or the things said in the scene don't relate in a straightforward way to what you would call the themes of the of the movie of the movie at large. Um, but uh, let me ask you a question about E.T. Is this plot, uh, since we're in high school English class right now, is this plot uh, man versus man, man versus nature, or man versus self? Oh, wow. That's interesting. Right? Uh, right? Yeah. It's all of them at different times, but, mm. never, but never, in a particular, uh, never in a particular way. Right? It's kids versus adults uh, at, at certain points. It's a race against the clock at certain points, and races against the clock are always man versus nature because it's a, you know, it's, it's the, the sun is going to go down or the fire is going to go out or whatever is the archetype of that you know, particular thing. Um, and uh, there are some, you know, there are some sort of things that, like, Elliot, you know, I don't know. I I, I, I think that the specter of the absent father looms large over over this movie, and it's the, like, it's the sort of provision of the absent father, Elliot's provision for himself of the absent father uh, that a lot of this is, you know, uh, th- that a lot of this has to do with. But I'm, I'm really, I'm really spinning out. Let's come back to, let's come back to this scene uh, and ground ourselves a little bit in in analyzing it. Unless Pete, there was something you wanted to pick up from from there. Well, just one quick gloss on this is the story of ET is in a sense nonfiction 
<laughs> in that it is based off of it is based on a true story in much the same way as other movies that are based on true stories right like the like the one about the coast guard with chris pine where it's like i'm sure one thing in this movie happened right um but the true story that this movie is based on is steven spielberg as a child dealing with his own parents divorce and imagining that he had an imaginary friend who was an alien right uh and, and that that the alien provided him with this sense of companionship and belonging and that he didn't get from his absent father and he didn't he didn't feel like he connected with either his father or his mother right and so he invented company to have uh, and so it's interesting to think of the experience of Elliot introducing his world to the alien as Elliot kind of craving a way to introduce the world to somebody to, is this is it an idea of mirroring, right? Where Elliot is trying to get reflected back to him the things that he's observing about the world, and his mom is a total freaking space cadet, and his dad is in Mexico, right? And so neither of them are available for him to do this. And so when Elliot is sharing this with ET, it is sort of a of a you know quote unquote man, right? You know, boy, woman. You know, there's lots of people that aren't man, but you know, like man versus self. Right. Uh, conflict where yeah. Elliot is trying to understand. It, just, it sounds own. better than agency versus agency, right? Like, yeah. or, you know, agency versus uh, versus yeah, they self. Versus, so I, they versus them doesn't yeah. really work. I'm, they I'm, versus them versus they versus they, right? Is that what it is? They versus they, they versus them, and they versus those. Is that how it works? I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, and suddenly the thing, though, I am I am definitely sympathetic to the kind of inherent sexism in in the way this oh, stuff yeah. is is languaged. And, and uh, I just think we're not going to solve that problem right now. No, 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 no. Yeah. But to, to get back to it, I mean, one thing I wanted to point out is that he, I love that he shows him Lando Calrissian. Right. I just thought and that was just amazing. It's like, this is Lando Calrissian. He says, this is what this guy does. This is what this thing does. This is what this thing does. And he says, this is Lando Calrissian. And Lando Calrissian doesn't do anything, as I recall in the scene, right? Uh, that there's no explicit purpose for Lando Calrissian. But then you consider what the purpose of Lando Calrissian circa 1982, i.e. before Return of the Jedi, is, right? Which is to do two things, which is to, well, three things. Invite you to his house hand you over to Darth Vader <laughs> right, and then help you escape via spaceship, right? Or like the three <laughs> things that Lando Calrissian does. Although he also gives you a spaceship, which Elliot also does by uh, lending E.T. his plastic basket equipped BMX bicycle uh, to fly through the air. The, the Millennium Falcon uh, as it were, writ small. Yeah, that, that, uh, that really was the Millennium Falcon of bicycles. <laughs> this is, is this Here's a side question. Is this the best BMX bicycle movie that there is? Because I was shocked by the amount of sweet tricks and catching air. Uh, Nothing too exotic, but nothing too ostentatious. But that's like some quality BMX bicycle work going on late in the movie. And by the way, and it's shot really well. And uh, you can see that all that stuff is stunt doubles. And you can see why they put everyone in hoodies or like baklava helmets. uh, Right? Like, so that Balaclava helmets? Baklava helmets. They're helmets <laughs> made, made out of phyllo dough. Yeah, just, <laughs> just fantastic pastry helmets. 
<laughs> oh, man. Can you tell I'm hungry that I haven't had dinner yet? <laughs> I'm really very, very hungry. Balaclava helmets. Yeah, the, the, like, when they kind of suit up in that awesome scene where it's like trucker cap, headphones, sunglasses, because I'm the mod one. Balaclava <laughs> helmet, right? Like, uh, and, the, and the kids take off. Um, the reason for all of that obscuring their faces is so that you won't notice the stunt doubles doing all the, the BMX tricks as they kind of go down the terrace. Uh, uh, thing in the housing in the housing development. Speaking of which, the setting, the like the suburban setting with like a subdivision under construction. Uh, important for the important for the movie, or just just where it happens to be. I think it's got to be important. Right? It, it, yeah. I, I'm a little confused though because of the corn, right? right? There's corn in their backyard, but it's in. They're in Southern California. Or se- yeah, exactly. Where where it takes place is a little obs- uh, is a little obscure. Yeah. I'm just gonna bite down on a little baklava and then uh, <laughs> and, uh, and maybe and we just have to write off where specifically this movie takes place as being like it takes place in the town that you observe. And so rather than try to determine wait where does this really take place, just be like let's take for granted the the information that we have. Right. Uh, just, in, just in the way that like you know the car is from the U.S. government. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, this, maybe this goes back to the nobody eats the shark. Right. Is what the is what the suburbs are about here is that there's two ideas that are put forward about safety. Right. And one say one idea of safety is that there are certain sorts of places, certain sorts of lifestyles, certain sorts of values that you can hold and social organizing principles that put you in a place where nobody eats you. Or there's the idea that everything eats everything except for the apex predator who can't be eaten. Right. And then this sort of juxtaposes the idea of being a, a suburban, uh, a suburban, like a suburban uh, provider, I suppose, and being an apex predator. Right. Like is is Elliot's ability to survive in the suburbs because he is a, a shark in the making? Or is it because he recognizes that the that the way of life that he aspires to is not the way of the shark, but the way of the vegan shark or like the Robert Pattinson ve- vegetarian vampire? Right. Uh, that he's like, no, we're not going to eat the frog. We're not going to vivisect the frog. We're going to let the frog go. We're going to find a better way. Or is it that he realizes, no, I'm really smart. I'm really capable. I'm the shark. Nobody can eat me and nobody can eat my friends because they're also sharks, uh, except for Greg. Shut up, Greg. Greg's the worst. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> man, the number of times they say shut up, Greg, or tell Greg that he's stupid in this movie is, is a large number of times. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get away with that. Uh, today, right? Like we can't. Um, I don't know. We can't. We can't. Like Greg would be. You know. I don't know. Greg, you'd need a. Uh... No, you get away with it, but it would be. It wouldn't be played straight, right? There would have to be a release of that tension. Uh, because I think the yeah, Greg would right exactly. Like, Greg would have to provide some sort of crucial uh, third act revelation or something <laughs> that that realized that he was brilliant. Uh, brilliant all along. I like that. Which the, he, of course, in this movie, does not. He, Greg does nothing. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I like. I like that the kids are playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, I like the. Uh, you know, it's it's um, it's nice. this. I think this was before, though. The like the mania about Dungeons and Dragons and like Satanists or something like this, because there was like you know uh, Dungeons and Dragons was uh, like cults or something was considered a particularly malevolent force in a particular moral panic later in the in the the 1980s or or maybe early 90s. But uh, but at this point, they're you know they're just sort of nerdy kids and and are I mean 
are enjoying it. Like a lot, and and art, it's yeah, it's sketched so sketched so economically. Like going to the school in that frog, uh, in that frog vivisection scene, and the way Elliot kisses the girl. Right, it's a whole it's a whole other movie, and it's done in like three shots, and it's just uh, I mean, it's just a masterstroke. Like you know, I I don't know. I maybe today he's a parody of his former selfer is so established that he can't do anything this like uh this groundbreaking anymore but uh, though i don't know bridge of spies was pretty damn good um but like it's it's just so it's so good what spielberg does right uh, the in this movie it's told with such economy uh with such uh coherent um and unique and appropriate visual style uh and and um and the score is is just next level stuff you know uh, i don't know it's I, we're not a review podcast but there's my review if you want it let's let's keep talking about that particular scene the frog vivisection scene and in particular the kiss um which uh before i rewatched this movie uh that scene i'd completely forgotten about um you know i think most people are just familiar with the broad strokes of yeah uh, i, re- I uh, remember e. and f- elliot's yeah. physical connection and phone home and the spaceship and the and the flying and all that kind of stuff but the the frog scene it is a couple of uh really interesting things one is that it really drives home this uh, whole intertextuality this is the kind of the um, the meta nature of this movie in that right uh, uh, the the story is being mediated through other stories because E.T. is watching uh, a TV show um, uh, a drama and uh, and you see the kiss and there Elliot intuits that uh, through what E.T. is watching and then kisses the girl um, so you know have that and we should also talk uh, about the Peter Pan intertextuality going on as well uh, later on uh, but the other interesting thing going on in this scene is that you have this kiss. This uh, pre-adolescent boy kissing, I guess, a pre-adolescent girl, um, and it's and and that wonderful uh, shot of the of the feet of the shoe kind of twisting like that, um, and yet the romance doesn't come into play at all for the rest of the movie. It's just like this weird little episode that comes and goes, and you, you don't see. I think the girl is, is shown in, like in one prior scene, maybe on the school bus or, or, or something like that, uh, and then in the kiss scene, and then I don't think you see her at all. And if you do see her, she doesn't figure into the plot. At all, and, and that is a fascinating use of a kiss yeah. in, in a movie, and something that I cannot really uh, think of another example of. So uh, I don't know, Pete. Do you, do you have any other thoughts about this scene and like what's going on, particularly with the kiss? Well, it's worth pointing out that it's not just anybody; that it's Erica Eleniak, uh, which who would later be on. Uh, uh, well, I mean, Under Siege is where a lot of guys my age know her from. But <laughs> was like, and was she on Baywatch as well, or was she, she was definitely on, on Charles in Charge? Uh, and she was on a bunch of stuff. But and so she's like, so it's like it's always interesting in these sorts of movies. And this is a bit of a sidebar to what you're actually asking about. But to see C. Thomas Howell, to see Erica Eleniak, to see people who would later be very famous, uh, or at least moderately famous, or at least very well known and very noticeable. But yeah, it's interesting, right? I think it goes back to this idea of. What is really trying to be resolved in this movie, it's easy to look at E.T. and think that, okay, the theme is friendship, right? And I guess it's friendship, but E.T. and Elliot have more than a friendship, right? If if anything, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like biologically E.T. and the people, the the aliens of E.T.'s species, in order to stay alive, have to... Uh, connect with each other using their kind of chest organ, 
right, which emits some sort of electromagnetic spectral radiation or some make some sort of connection where they feed on each other's life energy and are yeah. able to heal each other or damage each other, right? And that they that that's and that they presumably develop this as a social tool uh, or perhaps as uh, as a, as a as a sort of hunting and gathering tool because he's also able to use it on other living beings, right? That like ET can use his life or death power and his connection power on plants and on uh, and they can use it on animals and like Elliot right and so you can use it and it's this distinction between like we're talking again about the fish the fish food the shark right is this are you do you treat your friends like you treat animals right is is there is there a difference between an animal that's sort of in the food chain and can be dealt with and kind of dissected and eaten be an animal that is a is a social creature that you connect with. So okay, so so ET has this bond with Elliot that ET seems to be making as a survival instinct, like to try to survive until his family comes back, right? Because like, and, and he might. It seems like at some point Elliot might die, right? Like Elliot's being hurt by ET's bond not really being adequate uh with him as it would be with another et i guess is yeah the point. or right yeah and and that like whatever in that symbiotic whatever that they have he he declines alongside et right right so et and elliot have the same problem which is they both have a natural emotional uh nurturing bond that is supposed to be there but is missing with right. et it is this like supernatural sort of sci-fi bond with other aliens and with elliot it's his bond with his dad and also his mom, but mostly his dad, who's gone. And they find each other in each other like replacements for that for that bond. And in this scene, we are exploring a couple of different sorts of ways in which that sort of desire gets transmuted. Right. right? Like Matt, Matt, you want to jump in there? Well, sure. Like, uh, just remember when when Drew Barrymore, who who we have yet to get to, but who is fantastic, uh, it, when Drew Barrymore asks, uh, "Is it a boy or a girl?" Elliot quickly says he's a boy right right and 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 i think that's right in the kind of the uh world of this movie that he sort of provides he sort of provides something that's gendered male um which is a sense of belonging and a sense of kind of a sense of kind of face-to-face uh bonding you know intimacy instruction um uh, something, something like that. Like I, you know, I relate the the kiss scene to the to the sort of um, to the all the the hobbies, the kind of like abandoned hobbies in Elliot's room, right? These are all sorts of things that you might do with your dad. You know, like I I actually built model airplanes with with my dad. Uh, we didn't stick with it a long time, um, but I we did enough to build a. Uh, uh, a plastic model of the the USS Enterprise NCC 1701D, you know, and um, various fighter planes and kits and stuff like that. Like these sorts of these sorts of hobby things. Many of them are are uh, are sort of father son things, and and like and also, you know, you can imagine the conversation of like. Well, son, you know, if if she's interested in you, that you can show her that you're interested as well, and kind of like bolstering his confidence to sort of uh, to talk to a girl or something, something like that. And he's in, you know, he's in sixth grade. That's uh, I don't know about when that sort of awkwardness started. Those kind of first awkward fumbling attempts started, at least in my group of friends. And that, like, uh, you know, so this is a sort of this is sort of age appropriate, 
appropriate level of of uh, interaction between the kids and like what ET provides. Uh, what ET provides is that kind of missing bond, that kind of like a missing emotional sense of belonging or confidence or uh, uh, adventure. Or uh, by adventure, I mean like venturing out. That that ability, you know, um, that ability to sort of try to risk and to uh, to sort of accept the kind of uh, the potential reward and all of the potential vulnerability uh, of risk. And so he really, I mean, he really is kind of standing in, uh, standing in for a dad in, in a lot of these ways. Yeah, and let's not forget that he's drunk. That's another thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, yeah, there's also that so, with dad. So right? E.T. is drinking, E.T. is drinking Coors because he's trying to figure, he's hungry. He doesn't know what he needs. And he's looking at the fridge and he's trying to figure out what's in the, in the fridge. And he's, he starts slamming some, some cans of Coors, right? Which gets Elliot drunk, right? And then E.T. looks at, you know, romantic scene on TV and that gets El- Elliot like kissing girls, Right. And so there's this like there's this weird uh, I learned it from watching you that's going on like like E.T. is sort of uh, and also E.T. is also sort of stumbling around in the open bathrobe. I learned it. I learned it from you, alien dad. I learned it from watching you. Like literally E.T. is stumbling around in the kitchen alone, like in a bathrobe with the front open. And somehow Elliot is like secretly watching. Him unemployed, and to- right? Like unemployed, unemployed during business hours. <laughs> and Elliot is watching him and doing what he does. Right. Uh, which is which is um, and that's not exactly obviously. And this is one of the beautiful things about Spielberg is that you can look at the scene and unpack it and be like, wow, that's a really sort of brutal truth about what's happening here. But the tone is managed so well that it comes across as innocent. Right. Like it comes across as having this beautiful childlike innocence. But we all know from the experience of being children that children are not innocent and that childish and childlike innocence is not. Uh, a, a sinlessness or a cleanliness, right? It, it, it is a sort of uh, a lack of memory and a lack of consequence, right? And a lack of, of sort of, of expect. It's a different expectation. Yeah, a lack of a, not- a lack of indoctrination or right, like initiation. You know, yeah, innocence doesn't mean that you can't do anything wrong or aren't doing anything wrong. It's that you don't. It's the Adam and Eve thing. It's that you don't really know whether what you're doing is wrong uh, yet. You haven't quite figured it out. Right. Uh, and you haven't quite internalized uh, how to deal with all those consequences. Sure. Like a um, kids, you know, like a, a toddler who throws a rock at a bird or something like that in the park. Right. Like that. It's not uh, the toddler is doing something bad, but isn't isn't aware of the badness of the thing. And so, like, we look at it. We look at it morally. Uh, we yeah. look at it morally differently, uh, morally differently than the teacher who drops the chloroformed cotton balls, you know, into the uh, into the frog um, uh, into the frog jars. You know, I mean, the, which the, is horrific. That whole we, we've even put aside just how horrific that scene is. Like when the teacher talks about how the frog's heart is going to still be beating when it's dissected. I mean, did you guys do that? Dissect living frogs, like vivisect Ooh. frogs? No, no, fro- no, 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 no living animals. There was like a dissection in our class, but not that. Yeah, yeah, that's that was just brutal, right? And this is, and that this is the sort of like, hey, 
listen to this authority figure. This authority figure is going to tell you the way that the world works. And it's like, actually, I have another authority figure that I listen to. And he says that I should drink beer, get drunk, and kiss girls. (laughs) (laughs) And then I should let animals go free. I should let things go free. Go back to the river. Back to the river, frog. I I mean, yeah, I'm not sure it's that that sort of socially uh, maladaptive, right? Like it's – I think these things are important kind of in in terms of the tone that they set. But but like Elliot doesn't – I mean E.T. is as close to a normative father as as you can find in a movie about a boy and his alien, right? Like the the, – Fire Giants a little bit more, but (laughs) – Well, there you go. Uh, There you go. Um uh, yeah, these these things that happen, and then like when the when the human father shows up in the form of Peter Coyote as the the dangling keys character, right? Like who really offers an experience of kind of identification, right? Like looking face to face through the window, uh, you know, through the the spacesuit, right? Like, but saying like I've wanted this to happen since I was your age and I'm glad he came to you. And like, you, you get the sense that, that he means it. He, and he's also sort of a weird, in a weird way, an authority, uh, though he seems to have no, uh, no particular job other than carrying keys, uh, around from place to place. Like he, he can tell, uh, all the government doctors and scientists and whatnot to leave the room for a second and open the, the, you know, containment pod that ET is in. Um, and that he's, uh, you know, uh, that he's probably uh, in charge of the whole in charge of the whole thing. He's the you know spy, and everyone else just just sort of works for him. So like, so there's this sense of kind of authority and and like taking control of the house, uh, you know, and being in charge of the uh, being in charge of the residence. Um, yeah, which is really it is sort of it is a a house on the verge of the known and the unknown, right? Like sometimes when the house is shot, it's shot in the context of a housing development. Uh, it's in, you know, connection with, with taming nature, with what's known. Sometimes the, the house is shot by itself against the backdrop of a hill uh, in a way that makes it seem like it's a homestead on the frontier, you know? And that like the, the corn or the like the weird backyard thing where there's a kind of a, a staircase up to nowhere you know uh that like this is the this is the aspect of the house that that um sort of sits on the sits on the known and the unknown and the the way that the the government takes over the house uh the fact that the the dangly key character with this you know with this dangly jingly thing uh that hangs down from his waist you know that that this is um uh I don't know that that he he seems to be the sort of the the real the kind of final father or maybe the good stepfather who comes in to kind of fill the void and take take control because he is present in the final sort of family scene you know uh the uh at the the spaceship takeoff site um where you know mom the whole family the dog uh the kids um and the friends are 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 there in this kind of re- in this sort of end of paradise lost right like some natural tears they dropped but but wiped them soon the world was all before them where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide uh they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through eden took their solitary way right like in the forest of of Eden, 
uh, or the forest of Arden, um, the uh, the the nuclear family is kind of reestablished by the the guy with his his phallic dangly keys, um, sort of taking the mother in hand uh, as it goes. And I, I I feel like I've I've won bingo literary reference bingo now. So uh, I'll just ask if you guys have anything to add. Sorry, I've point. been I've just been over here just stabbing this giant marlin that's on the side of my boat. <laughs> get, out, get out there, get in the hole. Uh, it's. Um, I get you could say that there are these moments that happen and Spielberg has a specific way of doing them that you could attribute you I, the word magic comes to mind for them uh, and and I would include the arrival of Peter Coyote and that sort of moment where he talks about wanting the aliens since he was 10 and I would include the kiss with Erica Eleniak in there too where the way that we come to arrive at that moment seems to have a different the, the the moment itself seems to have a dramatically different quality than the way that we had come to arrive at it and that in doing this it is it does not feel like we've become decoupled from all of the themes and engagement it just feels like something has jumped ahead or some sort of connection over it's like the it's like the potential energy had a large enough voltage that the spark jumped a long way right like you jump a long way to go from you know my 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 awesome drunk dad told me to do this to like really what we watch is ariel eniak's child uh childhood sexual awakening is what the the foot toe turn means because i've seen that in um you see it sometimes in painting from like the 1700s and 1800s i think uh you sometimes see portraits of little girls uh, paintings of little girls with their foot turned in uh i'm trying to think there was one painting in particular and it's i think supposed to indicate a a, a uh, an a imminent ascendance to womanhood like the sort of very very end of virginity uh is is cuz it's it refers to the sort of uh it draws awareness to the ankle and to the position of the legs at a time in culture where this was like a highly significant thing to draw attention to. Uh, and I can see if I can find one of those paintings. The, the sort of the art historical uh, significance of it. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's actually, I mean, it's a great sort of filmmaking technique that kind of in a moment like that, you can, you can uh, bring a lot of stu- stuff to bear. Like that's, this is, this is, true a lot and and the the sequences of like on the bus or in the classroom when he looks at her and she looks at him like the this kind of back and forth is is done pretty uh is done pretty economically and uh uh you know pretty convincingly yeah there's one painting called the broken flower pot from 1876 by jan verhas which has stuck in my mind uh, as having the same sort of idea as the kiss between except it's sad rather than happy because uh we live this is painting is about a time in which it is like very bad for for children to engage sexually with each other in even a small way right whereas like et is from a time in which children having their first kiss was thought to be kind of a beautiful thing and a positive thing yeah well certainly um, in the kind of this this spielbergian kind of normative nostalgic childhood right like this yeah this is definitely you know uh a, a kind of important rite of passage you know, with a lot of, uh, with a lot of, a lot of overtones. Um, the, the other, I mean, speaking of like children and the boundary between children and, and adults and kind of arrested childhood and stuff, like we, we sort of name check Peter Pan, uh, a little bit in this movie. And like, I, I suppose to like line up the pieces in the analogy, right? Like, uh, E.T. is Peter Pan because he gets them to fly. (laughs) 
right? And uh, or maybe he's Tinkerbell because he has the fairy dust. Um, and the the boys are the uh, the boys are the lost boys. But the the particular passage being. Um, the particular passage being uh, referenced in Peter Pan is the one where Tink drinks poison uh, in order to save Peter from drinking poison. So it's a thing of of sacrifice, uh, and oh. and that's... is that what ET is doing? Does ET separate from Elliot, risking his own death in order for Elliot to stop being hurt yes. by ET? Being I mean, hurt? I, okay, that was my that was the yeah. construction that I put on that particular scene when I watched it yeah. anyway, because it's about it's about self sacrifice, and that's the the. Right. Theme here. Um, hey, for it what it's worth, explains why uh, why Elliot doesn't die when ET dies. For what right. it's worth, um, uh, this is the point in if you ever see Peter Pan on stage. This is the point where Peter will turn to the audience and say, "Clap if you believe in fairies. Don't let Tink die. Clap if you believe in fairies." And the whole audience starts uh, starts clapping. Um, that's but you that, also clap along when you watch forty inspirational speeches in two minutes, right? Uh, that's uh <laughs> oh yeah that's in there isn't it um the uh yeah that so so there is a kind of there is a kind of resurrection by the collective right that happens to tinkerbell after uh after she sacrifices herself and so when when extra to, uh, ex- extra tinkrestrial, uh, <laughs> like uh, uh, sacrifices himself. Um, the the ET collective gets uh, gets him to um, uh, gets him to kind of come back to life, and uh, we believe we believe in ET, so we we clap, right? Yeah, and and so if we think about Spielbergian nostalgic childhood, as so so with Peter Pan. Right. There's this idea that children, Peter Pan's superpower comes from happy thoughts and fairy dust and fairy dust is something that's not available to adults just by circumstance, uh, but is available to children. But happy thoughts are something that should be available to adults, but generally aren't in the world of Peter Pan, I suppose, in the same way. Uh, and you sort of have to consider the, the, the it's sort of this Peter Pan stories provide us with enough exceptions that it, we can of course say well that's not really how it works but I think the expect the baseline expectation given the mechanics of Peter Pan is that children are capable of a sort of innocent happiness that it, and, and a power that's associated with that innocent happiness that adults are not capable of and so the empowerment of Elliot the little shark as the nostalgic Spielberg child is like Peter Pan because he has an access to a way of feeling that adults have lost. And, and he leads the other children who don't share his confidence or his ability that Peter Pan brings sort of an adult confidence and adult capability and an adult organizational capacity to a group of children, but brings with it that childlike sensibility of, of happiness and power. Yeah. Not the childlike sensibility. Yeah. Not the childlike sensibility of like, of like innocence and and like I'm just gonna play no like like action and agency. But so right? I mean, you say it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of developing an idea around this this kind of great chain of being represented in the shark speech as having to do with kind of a rupture. Like a, it, he talks about it uh, as though it's a food chain, and we think of that as being a story of predation. Um, but I think it's a story of like God's in His heaven, all's right with the world. But there's a rupture, right? So what if you said it like this: the fish love the fish. Food. Food. The shark loves the fish, but no one loves the shark, 
right? And that that like uh, you know, and if you're willing to take that that step with me, you can kind of see the sort of rupture created by the absent father, who would be the who would be the superior predator, right? From a certain point of view, uh, and that like how this absence is sort of. Uh, how this absence is sort of su- supplied. Um, the mother is an animal too, by the way, right? She's a sexy leopard on Halloween yeah, yeah. in a really in a in a really tight dress. And I think that, that like so sad. I know it is. So oh sad. yeah, and like she when she's and she's lost her child at that you know right in in. Uh, you know, combination with that, right? Like, um, that, like, I, I'm actually, I'm very sympathetic to the mother in this, in this movie. Like I'm, I'm, I, I was raised by a single mother, so I'm sort of used to, uh, something looking like she's a basket case or not in control, uh, from the outside. But, but like, she's just very, uh, overwhelmed by the kind of the multiple demands pushed, uh, pushed on her by, the the circumstances and that like you know she's clearly working dealing with uh you know elliot the the little delinquent who frees all the frogs (laughs) right like uh trying to like can't really guide her older son who's trying to learn to drive and is screwing up you know screwing up backing out of the driveway uh the the uh she can't even get the dry cleaning done right right like um and then and then there she is sitting alone at home like that's not for a that sexy kitty outfit is not to go to some sort of adult halloween party you know have a couple drinks cut loose and you know hey maybe uh have some fun with someone no it's it's to sit at home alone and swat uh swat at the candles with uh with her you know magic wand or whatever yeah she's 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 hoping the dad comes home right That's what she's doing. She's like sitting there hoping that he's going to come home for some reason on Halloween and she'll be able to rekindle their romance. Uh, or maybe that's a costume that they that she wore when they went to a party together at some point. There's so much that happens in E.T. that the movie doesn't explain. Yeah. And it really makes it feel like a quality piece of work personship. Right. Like, is that like, we, yeah, we don't a, quali- a quality, the but, they, yeah. but they're, they're too. It's not just that they're unexplained. It's that they're unexplained and yet they somehow ring true. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's a kind of emotional truth to them, even if there's not a kind of backstory. Right. Like even if there's not some sort of document, you know, some sort of E.T. uh, explainer uh, that that can do them. They are they are consonant, I guess, is the word that I want with the uh, with the other elements of the movie. They they kind of create a a coherent whole. And and at that point, hey, I want to come back to one thing I said at the beginning, because the, the because I promised. I would. There is a self-referential moment when you see how good the acting is, how good Elliot is in in this movie. Uh, do you, do you, either of you recall what it is uh, where he puts on a little show? He acts so badly, and uh, it it makes it clear. Uh, how good he actually is in the rest of the movie. It's when he knows E.T. is alive. He stuffs the blanket on top of the heart. 
uh, the red oh, glowing yeah. heart. And, and he then, just starts crying. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, 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 He just yeah. throws and, and doesn't even cry. He just starts kind of screaming as though he's sobbing. Um, and it's so, it's so bad. It's, it's really false. It doesn't, uh, it's not consonant with the, the rest of his character. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, uh, compared with the thing of him looking through the circular portal, you know, at the corpse, what he thinks is the corpse of E.T. and talking about, like, he, he doesn't know what to feel. He feels too many things. He doesn't feel anything anymore. It's just sort of overwhelmed, right? Like, and, and this is like, it's, a, it's kind of an achievement to sort of get the level of affect uh, to where it is in this film and sustain it for as long as it does um, near the end of the, the, the film because it like redlines and then it just kind of stays up there for long, long stretches of time. The music has something to do with it, the way it's constructed and the performances all sort of contribute to this uh, um, to this particular to this particular thing. But like it is like I think I, I think that Spielberg is is like pointing out a little bit like, look, we're not we're not doing regular kid acting here. Uh, he's trying to do something better um, and, you know, by and large achieves it. Which he does through some interesting techniques, right? He he picks kids that he thinks can improvise. Yeah. And then he he hides the puppeteers so that the kids don't hang out with the puppeteers or see the puppeteers leaving and coming back a lot. And he shoots the movie in chronological order, despite the inefficiencies in terms of and the cost of moving around from place to place so that the kids experience the events of the movie in order and can experience and can improvise their emotional reactions more authentically to what's going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, and that's all really interesting as a way of getting a good performance out of a kid <laughs> is, is uh, make the movie as real as you can for the kid. Yeah, sure. Or, uh, right. or create yeah, there's a, kind a story of- that, uh, that, that Drew Barrymore was told essentially like, um, you know, E.T. has, has died. Um, and she just, you know, bursts into tears. And that wasn't, you know, and I think they, they just kind of had the camera rolling and grabbed that reaction and that without intending to be like, you know, the, the, the time to, to film it. Uh, they got, a, uh, for lack of a better word, a very real and, and genuine reaction yeah, from her because of the setup you just described. Pete. There is there is a kind of sordid history of manipulating kids uh, <laughs> in 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 Hollywood movies. Like, and it's it's sad. Like Jackie Cooper is one where they they wanted him to cry, so they they uh, uh, told him they were going to shoot his dog. You know, uh, yeah. And his his biography is called his autobiography, I should say, is called "Please, Mister, Don't Shoot My Dog." Uh, yeah, so there, there is this, there, there is this aspect. Uh, so there's actually now a whole body of law around what you can and can't do with with kid performers, and and I don't think Spielberg was on the 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 wrong side of it, but like kids are susceptible to. Um, I shouldn't say susceptible. Kids have this this kind of power, right, of entering into an imaginative reality with full commitment. Um, and that, that's something that, like, adult actors train many years to try to recover uh, that kids can do without really – because it's not all that big a deal, honestly. You, you, you uh, kind of accept the, the premise and you go. Um, 
but yeah, it's uh, it, so like it makes sense to go in chronological order uh, in order to kind of to make it easier to develop the imaginative reality in a way that's organic. Uh, you know, rather rather than in a way that's kind of based in in technique, because they're they're kids, and one thing innocence means is that you don't have uh, a ton of technique. Ask that to anyone who's ever had a first kiss. All right, final thoughts on uh, uh, final thoughts on on ET. Mark, anything you want to to leave us with uh, with uh, this uh, this alien movie that we deserve, not the alien movie that we got. Sure. Uh, one is to just recommend anybody who hasn't seen this in a very long time to, for God's sakes, watch it. Uh, watch it at least a couple of times. Um, it's so rich. It's such a beautiful movie. Uh, it is truly a masterpiece uh, in filmmaking. The other is to, uh, after you're done watching E.T., watch My Neighbor Totoro. I'm not even joking um, because there's, you know, it, it continues that through line of um, the sort of the, the power of the innocence of a child and what they can see versus what adults see. Uh, spoiler alert. The kids can see a big Japanese raccoon in a cat bus, and the adults can't. Um, it makes for an interesting sort of cross-cultural um, comparison there. Also, an absent, uh, a somewhat absent parent uh, situation going on there as well. So, um, watch ET and watch My Neighbor Totoro. Pete, anything from you? Uh, it was interesting watching this movie again and thinking about playing the old Atari ET game. The things from this movie that Atari picked to put in the Atari ET game, <laughs> which are very specific things, and yet not the things that I would have picked to make a video game based on ET. This is, of course, the famous video game that nearly destroyed the video game industry in which there are supposedly millions of copies buried in the southwestern desert <laughs> because <laughs> nobody would purchase them. Uh, this is the sort of pre-Nintendo death-of-home video game entertainment. Uh, I played the ET game, and ET's neck gets shorter and longer. That much they figure out. They're like, oh, that's interesting. We'll put that in the game. E.T. walks around slowly and awkwardly. Great. We'll put that in the game. <laughs> E.T. is lost in the woods a lot. Awesome. <laughs> like E.T. seems to have very limited powers of levitation that are marginally useful. Hey, I'm putting that right on the front, front of the box. Right. Uh well, let's see. There's a magical flying bicycle. Nope. There's Oh, E.T. changes color when he gets sick. That one we can do. That's really easy. So if, uh, oh, and then he has a relationship with people. Nope. He's trying to, nope. Uh, oh, he, he likes to find everyday junk. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Let's put that in the game. <laughs> so I don't know if you've had the pleasure of the game where you waddle around incompetently through nondescript landscapes gathering random junk so that you can extend and retract your neck for long periods of time to no apparent purpose. That is the Atari ET game. But I will tell you that it is a great example of how you can be faithful and not be good at adapting something. <laughs> so there you go. They didn't make it up. They, they found it all there in the source material. I think that that for me, like this, I always enjoy going back to uh, older films before uh, digital technology made it possible to cut every five or six milliseconds um, and kind of look at the way excitement and kind of kinetic energy is created in the visual style of the of the films right like and and i think the slashing uh lights have something to do with that right like the lights the flashlights are are a means of editing uh without cutting you know because they direct your attention from from place to place uh and the way that the way that sort of pacing works in the way that um 
uh, the kind of the uh, cr- creation and release of tension uh, works is an interesting thing because it's super successful and absolutely uh, works on me. And, you know, I don't know, I would argue that by not being this kind of pummeling aesthetic that I've described in so much like action, you know, I don't know when, when inevitably, like as all things must, we come around to the dark gritty reboot of E.T., you know, um, it's going to have this kind of pummeling quality uh and it's going to be uh uh the worst for it and i don't know something something about something about this uh i think works very well um because the the technological limitations force it to be a little more austere um all right parting thoughts from us thanks uh very much pete and mark for watching uh et watching the alien movie uh with me this then talking about it this yeah. week when we all when we all promised to do this together one could refer to it as an alien covenant right <laughs> <laughs> oh how long have you been sitting on that one <laughs> what just since we started the official alien covenant podcast <laughs> <laughs> um the uh uh <laughs> God. I'm going to have to put that all over the blurb now. I can't unthink it. Um, uh, then thanks very much for listening. Hey, uh, if you feel uh, like you like overthinking it and feel like you could spare a dollar an episode or even more, uh, become a member of Overthinking It. Support us. Keep us going. Uh, overthinkingit.com slash join. We will be back next week for more Overthinking It podcasts. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. And how about that really horrific scene where uh, E.T. bursts out of Elliot's chest? Oh, how about that? that Really. Yeah, or that scene where 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 uh, Greg eats Charles S. Dutton, and then everyone's like, "Shut up, Greg!" And then, <laughs> but they can't get out of the space prison. Uh, or, or or how about that scene where uh, Sigourney Weaver goes Elliot in a robot and is like, "Take that!" And then they're in the construction equipment. Yeah. How about that scene where Pete plays the uh, Atari video game and says, "That's it, man. Game over. Game over." <laughs> <laughs> Game over, man. We have to nuke it from orbit. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>